So you're saying that you learned how to properly run a business through asking questions, through making mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what I think is so interesting about my story is that I'm just like a normal person. I, I hope that kids in college can listen to this and realize that like, I'm normal. I did this. I had no business background and I just learned as I went along. Welcome to 30 Years in 30 Minutes, the podcast that distills decades of wisdom and success into bite-sized, inspiring conversations. My name is Michael Ovid, the host of the podcast. Along with Terrence Gable, I sit down with the world's most accomplished individuals and hear their stories of grit and determination. How did they rise to the top? What is the key to their success? How did they overcome the obstacles that they faced along the way? You will learn all that and more on 30 Years in 30 Minutes. Today, we're joined by Abby Taylor, who is the co-founder and CBO of Pliables, New Jersey's original superfruit bowl franchise. Abby and her co-founder began their company as a single umbrella stand on the boardwalk. And since then, it's grown into a national brand with over 200 plus franchises, which Abby oversees. In 2019, Abby was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and she received the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Regional Award for Innovation. Abby, thank you again for joining us today. No problem. I'm excited. So can you tell us a bit about your upbringing? What did you do in your upbringing that you think best set you up on this path to success? Yeah. So at a young age, my dad started um, his own plumbing company. Um, so he definitely was grinding and he was a hustler. So I saw that and how hard he worked. And my mom worked in retail my whole life, just had like a crazy schedule as well and really hardworking people. So I was surrounded definitely with that mentality. And I remember just even at like a young age, like I'm making bracelets and selling them on the beach and I'm painting sneakers. I always was kind of doing like these side hustles and selling artwork and things on the side that I enjoyed. So I think that that was something that I just always had instilled in me pretty early on. And I definitely knew that I didn't want like a normal nine to five job. I couldn't see myself sitting in an office or having a normal schedule. So in my head, I just kind of blocked that out early on, knowing that I didn't want to do that. So I think that kind of shaped me into what I am today. And what skills do you think you developed via those side hustles? I mean, it's hard work. You have to, it's how much you put in, that's what you're going to get out. So if you want to put in a lot of work and make a lot of stuff and sell a lot of things and get out there and, and talk to a lot of people, then you're going to do better. So it's, I think even at a young age, it's seeing how hard work pays off and seeing that with my parents as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally, and it's just about practice, practice, practice. If you're hardworking in your youth, you'll be hardworking as well when, when you enter the workforce. 100%. And so then when in college, you majored in graphic design. Yeah. Do you think that college was necessary for your entrepreneurial success or or how, if at all, do you think college played an impact in, into your success? You know, looking back, I was totally not a school person. I was not good at it. I would call my mom like every day. I'm like, I hate this. And she's like, just keep going, just keep going. And when it got to the art portion of it, you know, I was on the dean's list and crushing it because that's how I am. I only like to you kind of put in the effort into things that I am interested in. But I, I don't know necessarily that I needed to do that. But at the time, it's like, you know, that's kind of just what you do, but it didn't hurt. Like I had a, a good basis of art and understanding um, of design, which I always kind of inactly had growing up anyway. I, I was always doing really well in my art classes and I that came kind of easy to me. It's really what I enjoy most, but I don't know that it was completely necessary, but I did learn, you know, some Photoshop and all that kind of stuff, which I did use and continue to use in pliables today, but no business background and none of that. I was kind of just like learning on the fly. So what skills do you think are most important to learn in college? If if you're speaking with college students, what, do you, what would you tell them it's important to learn in college? I think it's good to be on your own and you're kind of like 
figuring out how to take on the day and fulfill your responsibilities and get your work done and friendships and all that. There's like a lot of different pieces to it that I think are really important in life. I think it's like a lot of time management too. You know, you have to be smart with your time because you see how it gets so crazy and you get really overwhelmed with work and homework and it's hard to balance everything. So I think that's really a big key part of college as well as like learning how to like get all your stuff done and how to manage all the different aspects of life. And so then when you found the Deployables, you said that coming out of college, you didn't really have a lot of business experience. Can you, can you speak to that? What, what type of business experience did you have when you started Deployables? I had zero. Um, I, I was bartending at like a nightclub in New Jersey. So I learned kind of like a little bit of basis of business from them, but, and just see, I just kind of learned as I went along. I had no business background. I took no business classes, made a lot of mistakes. Um, but yeah, I just surrounded myself with people that were smarter than me and asked a lot of questions. I didn't care if the questions sounded stupid. Um, I wasn't scared to, to look a certain way. I just kind of soaked it all in around me and made a lot of mistakes. So then, and so you're saying that you learned how to properly run a business through asking questions, through making mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what I think is so interesting about my story is that I'm just like a normal person. I, I hope that kids in college can listen to this and realize that like, I'm normal. I did this. I had no business background and I just learned as I went along. And what do you think of the first thing that you learned in business was the most important fundamental thing that you learned in business that set you up, that laid the foundation for everything else? I think that I was very trustworthy. Like I thought everybody was out, you know, for the good in people and I trusted a lot of people and certain people around me definitely were out for themselves. I think in business, um, a lot of people are kind of watching their own backs, right? So you may think that they're your friend or you may think that somebody's helping you out, but really you have to protect yourself and what's best for you and the business. And that's really important. And as soon as I learned that, I kind of put up some walls and got a little bit more, I don't know, um, confident, I guess, on my feet in business. That's when things kind of change for me. And not to say that you have to be mean or salty or any sort of way, but it's definitely good to be a little bit protected. And then on the accounting, operations, inventory management end, what do you think is important to know there? There's a million things and we did none of that in the beginning. And then sort of when we did, it kind of was a mess. So I think doing that early on, there's so many tools even just online for free, right? With like accounting stuff and inventory and it, we weren't doing any of that. But I think that there's a lot of things at everyone's fingertips. So if you are starting a similar business, just kind of laying that groundwork. And even if it's not 100% good, at least you have something in place that's kind of like a little bit of a basis for a strong foundation. Yeah. So I guess we spoke about you not having business experience founding pliables. Can you can you tell me about how you founded pliables, how you came up with the name and and how you came up with the overall vibe of the, of the story? Yeah. So basically, like I said, after college, I've been surfing for like 20 years. So after college, I just wanted to go and travel and go to all these places that I had seen that people were surfing and I was seeing online. Um, so I just did a ton of traveling, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, California, Hawaii, Panama, everywhere I was going was kind of having different versions of acai bowls and I was trying them and I just was hooked I loved them so much and I just I came home and I'm making them for my friends and my family and everyone's kind of like uh leave us alone with these acai bowls and I just I was obsessed I, I loved how it made me feel I loved the taste of them I loved the story of the acai and at that time on the Jersey Shore there really wasn't any options for anything healthy so you'd be sitting on the beach and you have to get like pizza or a sub and then go back down on the beach and you're like uh, I feel gross why is nobody offering something a little bit healthier. So I think that there was a need for it at the Jersey Shore. So that's kind of how it all came about. And then my partner Rob and I 
decided that we would talk to the guy. We lived above a pizza shop in um, Belmar. We decided we'd talk to the guy who owned the pizza shop and set up a little cart and sell acai bowls. And also at that time, nobody knew what acai was. So it was a lot of educating, like going on the beach and handing out these little postcards that I made at Staples and talking about acai and travels and the benefits of the berry and a lot of educating on the Jersey Shore for sure. Did you have a business plan when you started or was it purely just about, I love acai bowls. I want to, I want to just bring acai bowls to everyone. Yeah. It really was just kind of like trial. Like, is this going to work? Let's see how this goes. And it was kind of good to have just that little pop-up. It was not committal. I wasn't signing a lease. It was kind of testing out this, this little concept. And how do you go from testing out a concept to then turning it into a 200 plus <laughs> franchise? I know this all sounds so crazy, but it is. It is crazy. It's my life and I, and it's crazy. It still feels that way. You know, in the beginning, it was hard. Nobody was really coming, right? So you're out there and you're putting in the time and you have your little setup and you have all your products and no one's really coming. And it was a lot about educating. And then all of a sudden, after like a few months of this, I remember like, I bartended until four in the morning. I got up. I'm making bowls. I had my head down and music on, bathing suit on. And I look up and there's like a line down to the corner. And I'm like, this is, people are getting it. Like they're loving it. So I was seeing that people were drawn to it and that people really liked it. I was seeing the same people over and over again. I'm like, maybe we could open up a store. Like, I think that at this point, like I'm sick of when it rains and when it's windy, chasing like an umbrella down the street, like what's going to happen uh, <laughs> every day. So it was seeing the success of the small little pop-up. I'm like, people are into this. Like, people really like this. We could definitely open up more. So then we opened up our first shop in Belmar right behind the stand. There was like a gym that got destroyed in Sandy. Um, so we went in there and in like less than 30 days opened up the Belmar store and we opened up 4th of July weekend. And there was a line that entire weekend. So I'm like, this is, we're on to something. So then we opened up and another little pop-up in Belmar and then Bayhead and Pier Village. And I was just seeing like, even in the winter in Belmar, the store is open and I seen varsity jackets from North Jersey in the dead of winter eating acai bowls. And I'm like, people want this like everywhere. People want this closer to them. And, you know, there's so many great towns in New Jersey and areas. Like, why can't we bring it everywhere? And that's, that was sort of how like the ball got rolling. Like, all right, people are into this. It's, it's crazy. People are traveling for this in the dead of winter to Belmar, New Jersey. Like, they want it. Let's bring it to them. And that's kind of how it got to this. And the mentality shifted at that point, for sure. I mean, your story really is a story that so many people strive for. Kind of, you're bootstrapping a business, on the ground, you start with an umbrella stand. And we spoke with the founder of Shake Shack, and, and he was telling us the same thing. He told us they started off as a stand in a park in Manhattan. And so, so many of these companies start off just like that kind of bootstrapping the business, 100%. I guess. And I always tell people that who ask for advice, like if you could test out a concept before like signing a lease or jumping into something really serious, like why wouldn't you test out that concept, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and so when you're bootstrapping that business beyond the testing, it's important. You have, you need a lot of capital for that. You need capital. You need to advertise. You need people to know about your brand. What do you think is important to know or to learn? What did you do to once when you were bootstrapping yeah. to further advance your brand in terms of advertising so the beginning like the initial startup cost literally was like our friend's patio table an umbrella and like a small like little refrigeration unit so it was really low cost so we just kind of like scrounged our money together and that was fine and then since then in the beginning we just kept rolling it in like i'm overdrafting my credit card or my my debit card like my mom's texting me like what are you doing like you know every month <laughs> like just putting the money back in putting the money back in but you're so deep into it and so 
engulfed in what's happening around you. You don't have time to spend money. So it's like, you're, you're not even thinking that way. I was just kind of putting it back in, putting it back in. And then all of a sudden it was just happening. But we didn't have like a marketing fund. I, we blew up at the same time that Instagram was blowing up, right? So that was free. And our bowls are really pretty and I enjoy it. So it was just on there and creating a following and responding to people and sharing the story and being nice to people and posting beautiful pictures or reposting pictures people are tagging us in. So a lot of that, like organic stuff and like walking around, like I said, and handing out flyers and as opposed to being like, here's a billboard, let's spend thousands of dollars because it just wasn't an option. So the creativity of it and being really like grassroots marketing, we always talk about that and still talk about that at Pliables was really the way that we approached it and it worked. And how important do you think it was that your bowls were aesthetically pleasing? So important. And how important do you think it is? Yeah. I think it's so important. The, the product speaks for itself and people want to come and take pictures. So it's like an easy thing. People are tagging us and, you know, in the beginning, like a hundred pictures a day. So it was like easy. I'm just filtering through that and creating my own content because I like to do that. But the bowls speak for themselves and the product is so beautiful, which is really helpful. And people love that. How important do you think it is as a whole for, for companies to strive for their products to look good? Oh my gosh, so important. You have to take pride in it. And we always talk about quality and our bowls are really big and people had a lot of things to say about that. And the bowl is too big, create a smaller bowl. And it was like, no, we're creating this experience of this beautiful bowl and hand it to you over the counter. And it's like an experience and you go to other places and you're not getting that. It's so important. I think for any, any brand to have beautiful products and really take pride in what they're making. And I think you've done a wonderful job at the marketing, by the way, beyond just making the bowls look pretty, which they do. Whenever people think of acai bowls, they think appliables. I know it's crazy. Yeah. How did you do the marketing? What is the trick for entrepreneurs looking to properly market their businesses, looking to properly market their companies and their products? What can they do that you did? Like I said, we didn't have money. There wasn't a marketing fund. It was like, I just was putting the effort into it, like taking a lot of pictures, doing a lot of content myself. I didn't hire anybody to do that. I was shooting everything. I think that it doesn't need to be like this big budget. Like you could just go in there and be creative with it. People want to see fun and creative stuff and all these social media platforms that are free, like just get out there and start there. Like don't go worrying about what the spend's going to be and how much you're going to spend in the marketing budget. Like I didn't think like that at all. It just like kind of organically happened. But like I said, it was definitely a lot of work and effort put into creating the content and telling the story and posting every single day. And it sounds stupid, but it's so important. So just being unique, being being fun, and making your company culture and brand something that other people want to take part 100%. in. hundred percent. And I also think that because we started at the cart, we had a lot of people who like grew with us. So they were part of like this story as more stores open, like, like, oh, I used to go to the cart. And I think that they kind of like wanted to grow with us. And that's why we're so authentic because people really blew up with us, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, but beyond the authenticity, I think what you guys have is a clear brand culture, a more chill surfer vibe that everyone can enjoy and you don't have to be a surfer to enjoy it. How did you create that culture? Or again, was it just not intentional and it just turned out to be that way? You know, that's my life. Like you come into my house and it feels that way. So I, I, don't, I don't even know that I put so much effort into trying to be that. It just sort of happened. And then all the stores, like the aesthetics, it was easy because that's like, that's what I like. So even just going in the stores now, the newer stores are so beautiful, but it still has that vibe and that feel and there's surfing on and music is on. It's creating like a little mini vacation and a little experience for everybody. But that kind of came pretty naturally because it was what I like and how I live my life too. So 
that just kind of went into the stores. And then that plays into what you were talking about before with the importance of having your brand be authentic to you. Because if it is, and you're having fun, then everyone else is having fun too. 100%. I think it's so important. And people could read right through it too, I feel like, when it's fake or people are trying to be something that they're not. I think you could feel that. Yeah. I mean, so it's one thing to have a wonderful culture in three or four stores in New Jersey. It's another thing to have 200 plus locations, scale to 200 plus locations, and keep the same authenticness, the same authenticity in all of those stores. Before we get to the authenticity, how did you scale? What was the process of the scaling like for you? So once you had the capital in the bank, once once people knew what Pliables was, how was the scaling process? So like I said, I saw that there was a really big need for it and people were wanting it like all across New Jersey. And I knew that we couldn't grow fast enough to kind of like beat the competition, get there before people got there and be, be the first acai shop in a lot of these towns. So we decided to franchise. And in the beginning, it was just kind of family, friends, people that we had met in the business. We kept it really close. And that was scary. You know, I was scared to, I wasn't making every bowl. I wasn't in every store and talking to people and being like front facing. We have to give away a little bit of the control. And it was definitely scary. But if we wanted to grow and be everywhere like we wanted to be and be the first to market in a lot of these spots, we had to do it this way. So we had to get all of that in place. You know how you have to get franchise documents and lawyers and that takes a long time and you want to make sure all of your documents are really strong and really good before you go into that so that was kind of like a long process but i knew that that was the direction we needed to go and so many people were approaching us like you know every single week like unsolicited uh, over 100 like franchise requests people wanted to get in on it so it was easy to like sort through that too and not just pick the first person who has money like kind of picking people that we're really into the brand and kind of fit along with the story and people that really stood out and some of their messaging that they were sending through was important to me. It wasn't just picking people because they had money. What are tips that you would have for somebody who's looking to grow to having a thousand customers, right? It seems like like you opened up your store first as an umbrella stand and then afterwards you opened up a formal pliable shop. What advice do you have for growing your base to a thousand customers and then growing it beyond that to a bit more than a thousand customers. Uh, that's tough. Um, I don't know because it happened so naturally here. It wasn't like I was out there trying to grow. You know what I mean? I, we stayed ahead of it too, where we were creating new things and keeping it exciting and doing like little specials and um, promotions. I think it's keeping it exciting for the consumer to make them keep wanting to come in. And this was before we had a loyalty program, right? Like no app. No one was coming in because they were going to get discounts, really. But just staying ahead of the curve and innovating and keeping people excited about our products, that helped. Definitely not being complacent will help you gain customers. But in the beginning, it kind of was just happening. We were really like in a good position. So I guess when you were franchising, did you you more so prioritized what the people who were looking to franchise the company would bring to the brand and how they would preserve the brand image rather than just making money? The people who are more involved even now have the more successful stores. So they're people that are still grassroots marketing. They're out in their community. They're in the stores. They're present. Um, those stores definitely do better. So it's those people that we want in our, in our franchise system even today. And why is it that you prioritize them over people who would bring the potential of a lot of money? I think it's important for them to understand the story of Pliables and be able to tell it and be an extension of me, an extension of you know, what we started here at Pliables, that's really important to me. And I feel like 
that's what's going to keep this brand authentic, like we talked about a lot. But it's just, it's a different type of person. Makes sense. And, and just going back to what we were talking about before with building up the company before franchising it. So you kept your main source of income, which was, I think you said a bartending? Yes. At what point did you drop the bartending? And at what point do you think people should drop their main job in pursuit of their side hustle? Yeah, that's really scary. I've even seen franchisees who have come on who now like just are doing like their pliable stores, which is so cool to see. I think that I did it for a couple summers and I just was like, this is, cr- this is nuts. Like this is, I was bartending till four in the morning and then being at the cart at eight and then doing that. Like it was just nonstop. I think I just did it to the point where I was like, that's enough for me. I, I, you know, this, I'm jumping in full time with this. At that point, we had a few locations, right? So I think it's something personal though. It's like, if the person thinks that they could do both or they think they're giving their all to both, then I guess that would be fine. But I wanted to really give my all to pliables. And I think it's better just to focus maybe on one thing. But I don't remember if there was like, it just was like a breaking point. Like it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. So what advice would you give somebody who's looking to scale a company while also working a full-time job? It's a lot of work. And I think if it was easy, everybody would do it. I always say that to people. I'm like, if this were easy, everybody would do it. And it's, it, at the end, it's going to be worth it. But it's a lot, a lot of work. Um, and you have to really love what you're doing and be passionate about it. Otherwise, you're not going to want to put in all that effort and work. Like, it has to be something that you're truly obsessed with. Otherwise, it's going to be miserable. Um, and it's going to really take away from the quality of your life, which is important. You need time for yourself as well. Even if it's just like an hour to go to the gym, it's so important. And I don't know that you could really do that if you're doing both, but there'll be a point where you'll, you'll just know. Now, as I'm sure you know, the, the journey of an entrepreneur is filled with ups and downs. What were some of the biggest losses of your career and, and what did you learn from them? It's really hard. There were so many things. I remember one time it was like 4th of July weekend and one of our distributors went on strike and didn't deliver any acai. And I was like, oh my God, what are we, we have no acai. It was 4th of July weekend. So I remember I just got in my car and I drove to every like Whole Foods was carrying acai at that point. And I think maybe Costco, I don't know, but I drove to every store like in the, in New Jersey. And I'm like, how many cases do you have? How many cases do you have? And just filling up my car, dropping them off at shops. And I remember like at one point, I'm just, I just put my head on my steering wheel and I'm like crying on my steering wheel. <laughs> and like one of my employees came out and was like, are you okay? I'm like, it's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. But stuff like that happens. And it's just, you have to be willing to just like get in your car and go and fix the problem. It's not like, oh, we're out. We're out of product. Like, no, like you got to get in there and make it happen and just be willing to do whatever it takes, I think. How do you prepare for something like that? You don't. That's why you just freak out. It's a lot. It yes. is a lot. I'm not telling anybody it's easy. You don't prepare for that. You you hope that that doesn't happen, but stuff like that happens. And like I said, you got to be ready to just like pivot and just like make it happen. Now, now the last question before we go on to the 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 segment about advice to the next generation is you founded a business with your significant other and a lot of people kind of caution against doing that because oh what might happen if you break up what might happen if if xyz what was your experience like founding a company with your significant other well we did break up and we do have separate lives now but and that was really hard and it was definitely a lot it was a lot. I wouldn't say don't do that because I mean, we got pliables out of it, right? And it's wonderful and that's great, but it is really hard. So maybe early on, like setting up clear boundaries or setting up clear, a clear plan of attack for both of you, right? Like this is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And having it maybe laid out clear from the beginning would be helpful. 
But nobody goes into a situation like this, you know, hoping everyone just is like hoping for the best. You don't know what, what's going to happen with the business or your relationship. And it is tough and it is a little scary, but I mean, what you can't predict the future, right? Yep. So how did you guys make it work even through your breakup? We, you know, I'm really like the creative side of it. And Rob was really more business sided. He just had that like innately in him. Um, so together we kind of like rounded out both of our strengths and kind of just tried to focus on like what we were good at. And then, you know, after things settled down or whatever, we could kind of like circle back and like, I don't know, just kind of like rounded each other out a little bit, but it was definitely hard. And, and yes, yeah, certainly that, that that's, that's a trend that, that I've actually been hearing a lot from, from a bunch of entrepreneurs, the importance of finding a co-founder that doesn't do exactly what you do that, that complements everything that you do. Right. And I, I think that's even with like a lot of friendships, right? Like you probably find people that might not be so similar to you, but it just works. That's kind of how it is. Yeah. And, and then last question before we go on to the advice, can you, can you solve this, this debate that I have with my friends? And I think a lot of people have throughout is it, how do you pronounce acai? Is it acai bowls? Acai bowls? <laughs> acai. I, I mean, you're, you're the, uh, you said it's acai? Acai. Okay. Not acai. No. Okay. So I've been saying acai and my friends have been telling me acai. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you're the, you're the queen of acai bowls. So I figured yeah. who better to ask than you. <laughs> yeah. That's really fun. So based on your experiences, your successes and your failures, if you were speaking to a high school or college student right now, what would you tell them to best prepare them for being a successful entrepreneur? Like I said before, it's not easy. Like you have to be willing to put in the hard work and be super passionate about what you're doing and love it so much and live in it and breathe it. And if that, if it's not something that you're completely fully into or you're completely obsessed with, I wouldn't even go forward and do it. It's you have to be fully all in and be ready for the twists and turns that are going to come your way and be ready to pivot and, you know, kind of just adapt to whatever's thrown your way. And so if you were speaking with somebody who's, in the workforce right now, similar to what you were doing bartending or, or, or any other job, would your advice change or would it be the same? No, it would definitely be the same. If you're going to do something, you have to be really passionate about it. Makes sense. Now for the rapid fire questions, what, what book would you recommend? I had my book ready because I wanted to, to show it to you, but a friend just gave me the creative act, a way of being by Rick Rubin. And it's really interesting. And I, and I like, I read a lot of the pages and I feel like it's talking to me. I don't know. It's very cool. You guys should read it. And what is your biggest regret? I really have no regrets. It was just so much learning. Like there was a lot of mistakes and things that happened. I just, it was part of the story. I like that attitude. So many people have regrets. It's important to know, never have regrets. Everything is part of the learning curve. It is. Bad things happen and it was just like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. You know what I mean? When did you know that you made it? Did I make it? I mean, you, you founded a, a company that's worth around under 50 million. Uh, you know what? I just Over. try to stay so, so grounded and down to earth and I never really want to change. I just kind of want to be that same person from the beginning of pliables. And I focus on being that way and living my life that way. And yes, it's definitely cool, but I just want to really focus on being that same person. I love that. What is a quote that you live by? I don't think I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like create my own quotes in my head, I think. So what's your, do you have any, any quotes that you've created in your head that, that, that you live by? 
I definitely like tell my team a lot. Like if something happens and it's bad and everyone's kind of down, I'm like, it already happened. Like, let's just move past. Like, let's just move on. Like it already happened. Why are we going to sit here and like be upset about it? Let's just move on to the next thing. I like that. Yeah. We talk about that a lot in our meetings. (laughs) And then the last question that we have is what has been the key to your success? I think definitely the positivity that you probably feel like even in this conversation, I think that that's a big part of it. And like I said, just being able to kind of pivot when things are thrown at you, it's, it's, you can't just like throw your hands up in the air for the day and that's it. It's like, all right, moving on. Like that happened. What are you going to do? And I think that that's so important to being successful. It's like, you can't just like let your whole day go down because one bad thing happened. That makes sense. Well, um, that's it for today. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for listening to 30 Years in 30 Minutes. Don't forget to like and subscribe and let us know in the comments if there's anyone else you want to hear from.